All right, everyone, welcome to the Toasty Kettle Podcast. My name is James, and I'm your host, and today we're doing episode 15. Before we start with the content for today's show, I wanted to take a minute to thank you all for finding the show and thank you for listening. My audience has slowly but surely been growing, and I know that's thanks to all of you who have taken a minute to share the show with a family member or friend. And again, as always, I'd ask that if you like this show, take a brief minute to share it with someone that you know who likes podcasts and let them know what you're learning. That really does help grow the show and help other people to find out what we're doing here. With that out of the way, I've done a lot of different episodes lately on state-specific restaurants. I've done the oldest restaurant in California. I've done the oldest restaurant in Florida. I've gone outside of the country and done the oldest continuously operating restaurant in the world. And today we're going to the great state of Idaho to interview Tom Richards, and he owns the oldest restaurant in the state of Idaho, which I think has the coolest name of any restaurant that I have come across in my lifetime. It's called The Snake Pit. Now, this restaurant has a long and and somewhat mysterious history. There weren't a lot of records kept. Tom explains why, but uh, we'll let him explain the ins and outs and all the details of this great piece of Idaho history. Now for the interview. Well, great. Well, I wanted to thank you again for making the time to come on the show today, and I'll have you go ahead and start by introducing yourself. Okay. Well, I'm I'm Tom Richards, um, native of uh, actually Hayden Lake, Idaho, just a few miles north of Coeur d'Alene. And I own the oldest restaurant in Idaho, the Snake Pit. Now, when I was researching the Snake Pit, first I had to think that's the perfect name for something you'd find in North Idaho, right? And, yeah. uh, and fantastic name for the oldest restaurant in Idaho. Uh-huh. So tell me a little bit about how the Snake Pit got its start. Um, to, to be honest with you, I have no idea. And I don't think anyone else does either. Um, most of the actual records from the, the whole County went up in flames in what is known as the big burn, the big forest fire that happened in 1910. So, um, basically anything related to the snake pit before 1910 is hearsay. Um, I do know there was a town at one point called Enaville, and uh, depending on who, what account I read, either the train station conductor or the director of the post office, one of the two men had a wife named Ena, and so decided to name the town Enaville. Enaville was a basically a railroad construction workers' tent city that sits right where the Coeur d'Alene River splits into the South Fork and the North Fork. And they were building uh, railroad tracks up both forks of the river. So uh, a tent city sprung up really quickly. Um, Enaville had a train station. And once the train tracks got laid, the Enaville train station is where you would change trains to get from the South Fork to the North Fork. Um, I've seen accounts suggesting that Enaville at one point in time may have had anywhere between 500 and 5,000 residents, but I don't know which number is more accurate. Most of those residents would have been living in tents and were 
mostly single men who were immigrants from Eastern Europe, most of those from Finland. Um, by the 1920s, the railroad track up the North Fork had been abandoned because uh, no significant metal deposits had been found. And there wasn't much of a reason for anyone to stop at Enaville anymore. Um, so most of the uh, construction workers had moved up the South Fork by that point in time to work in the silver mines. And so Enaville slowly disappeared. Um, I don't know exactly when the post office and the train station both disappeared. The other bars all disappeared. The general store disappeared and basically were the only thing that's left. Yeah, that's fascinating. Um, <laughs> whole town vanishing <laughs> like that. Yeah. Yeah. And it was a very temporary type of, I mean, it was mostly a tent city. Um, so there's no ghost town left. Um, I have not seen any even hints of a foundation of a train station or a post office. I don't know where any of those buildings were. I have a rough idea of where the train station was from some photos. I don't have any idea where any of the other buildings were uh, because there's just literally nothing left. Right. So with the with the snake pit, what was what was its role during during that time period? Well, you can tell from photographs of where the train station was that we were the kind of the hotel saloon next to the train station. Uh, through the 1920s, my understanding is the train station would have been fairly busy because, like I said, it's where you change trains to get from one fork of the river to the other. Um, as far as the significant towns, if you were going to take a train from Wallace to Murray, you would take a train from Wallace to Enaville and then change trains to go up to Murray. Um, we were we were a hotel and saloon sitting right next to the train station originally. Okay. So reading the history online, the snake pit has had some different names throughout history. How have, mm -hmm. how, what, what were those names and when did it start? When, when did you take on the name snake pit? Yeah. Um, and this, I, I kind of actually, I really enjoyed this about the snake pit because there are so few records, uh, partly because of that forest fire. And I think also because most everything that was going on at the snake pit was illegal. And so people were hesitant to keep any records of anything. Um, my, my answers to those questions are fairly incomplete. I know at one point the building was called the Clark hotel and one of the owner's last names was Clark. Um, we've got one old photograph with a, with a Clark hotel sign in front of the building. Um, I believe that was sometime around the tens or twenties or maybe thirties, but um not really sure on that. Um in nineteen fifty-four the building was bought by a woman named Josie Bates, and for a while she was pitching the name Josie's Tavern. Um but by the time Josie bought it in nineteen fifty-four, the locals were all referring it to it to it as the snake pit. Um and owners have had a kind of love-hate relationship with that name. Um, up until we bought it five years ago, uh, the various owners had always tried to get people to call it something else. Uh, as far as I can tell, the Snake Pit name was in pretty common use by the mid-1950s, but it's, it's hard to tell for sure exactly. So it was a name that was not given to it by one of the owners. It was given to it by the customers, and... 
without the owner's permission or blessing. Um, so what the last several owners found is that it didn't matter what they called it or what name they put on the building or on business forms. Everybody just kept calling it the snake pit. Kind of one of those bad nicknames that just stuck, right? Yeah, I, it seems that way. Yeah. So I've seen in print or online three different stories about where the name came from. Uh, the one that makes the most sense is that the snakes would have been a reference to the prostitutes working upstairs in the bedrooms. Um, so I'm imagining the locals using this derisively, something like, I, I can't believe I have to live next to that pit of snakes or something like that. Mm-hmm. Um, but I, I don't really know. Uh, maybe it was a term of endearment from the locals. <laughs> One of the other stories has something to do with with at an outhouse full of snakes, which doesn't really make sense because we really don't have significant numbers of snakes in North Idaho. Um, so I, of all the different stories I see, the idea that the snakes were the girls working upstairs is the one that seems to make the most sense and also would explain why the owners didn't like it. Yeah, yeah, that would, uh, from reading the history, that seems to make the most sense to me as well. Absolutely. Yeah, yeah. Now, so... Um, you get these misunderstandings easily um, on Facebook. I made a comment five years ago um, on our Facebook page that I just said, well, here's some interesting trivia about the snake pit. Um, even though everyone's been calling it the snake pit since at least the 1950s, if not earlier, we are the first owners to legally and officially call the building, to call the restaurant the snake pit. And I got these vicious responses from people saying, you don't know what you're talking about. I've lived here my whole life and it's always been called the snake pit. And I thought, well, that was my point is that regardless of what the owners tried to call it, you guys have always called it the snake pit, but it's, it's the internet. And I think people would rather, um, rather have an excuse to angrily denounce someone else as an idiot than actually (laughs) read or try to understand what's being said by someone. So uh, I thought it was kind of funny how many arguments I got out of that. Yeah. Yeah. A great way to spark some controversy, right? Yeah. Uh-huh. Yeah, so, which it certainly was. Yeah. How has the snake pit changed over the years? Um, again, and this is going to be like the answer to most of your questions. Uh, my answer is going to be full of guesses and and oral history and things that I couldn't possibly try to back up uh, with any sort of facts. So uh, my best guess is that when the building was built, it was probably run as a semi-legitimate hotel and saloon next to a busy train station. Um to the best of my knowledge, the building, the restaurant did, or the business did not ever have a liquor license until I, I know the liquor license was finally obtained in 1992. Um, I'm certainly quite confident that they were serving hard liquor the whole time the building was open. Um, so my best guess would be from when it was built to probably sometime between the 1920s and 1940s that it was a semi-legitimate hotel with a saloon and restaurant downstairs and a hotel upstairs at some time between say the 1900s and the 1930s it turned into a 
hotel that was actually a brothel upstairs with a restaurant and a bar downstairs. Um, in 1978, Joe and Rosemary Peak bought the building and the restaurant uh, with the intent of transforming it into a family restaurant. They actually moved in upstairs. So from 1978, it became a family restaurant downstairs with an apartment upstairs where the owners and their family lived. Um, 1992, the building got a liquor license. So since 1992, it's been a restaurant with a legal bar uh, with a family apartment upstairs. And today it's a family restaurant with a full bar and um, with an apartment upstairs that is occasionally occupied by um, some employees or summer workers or people like that. Okay. Now, with all of that change throughout the years, mm-hmm. obviously, you know, between fires and poor records, a lot of history is going to be oral history and legend. Yeah. And and that seems yeah. to be fairly common. I mean, I've done I've done several interviews with restaurants that have been open 100 plus years, and, and that's the same thing. They just uh-huh. didn't have the same way of keeping records that we would do uh, today. But with that being said, are there any stories that have been passed down through the decades with the snake pit that, that you're aware of that are your favorites? Um, Yeah. The earliest stories would date back to when Josie Bates owned the restaurant. Uh, that was between 1954 and 1978. Um, I've talked to one person who said he remembered the name of the man who Josie bought it from, whose actually name I can't remember right off the top of my head. Um, and that the place had kind of fallen apart. Um, so uh, I don't actually have any stories that would predate 1954. Josie Bates was um, apparently just a wonderful person and a really colorful character. So um, with lots and lots of stories about her get passed down. Um, And even hilariously, I've talked to quite a few of Josie's uh, relatives. Um, Her uh, grandkids occasionally show up at the restaurant. And even there, um, I, I get lots of different stories, some of which contradict other ones, and nobody can seem to agree on which ones are true and which ones are not. Um, but uh, what's obvious is that Josie was a character. She was really well-loved in the community. She, uh, she ran a restaurant and a bar downstairs that loggers and miners and local people were just absolutely in love with. And she was running something fishy upstairs, but nobody can even agree on um, how long that was going on, what year she was actually doing that. Uh, Some people tell me that for years upstairs, she was actually running a boarding house for uh, veterans returning from Korea and Vietnam and road construction workers and, and guys down on their luck. And that she was more of a grandma than a madam. So, um, yeah, it's it's hard to pin down exactly. One of the stories that I that I do love uh, that some people tell me is true and other people wonder is that on an annual basis, the booze police would show up uh, sometime around February or March, and they would actually they would be expressed being actually shocked 
just shocked, I tell you, to find that liquor was being sold illegally at the snake pit without a, the benefit of a liquor license. So they would shut the place down and give Josie a fine. She would take her annual planned vacation to Mexico while the building was shut down. Uh, we do know that she traveled to Mexico frequently to load up on souvenirs to come back to sell at the snake pit. And so then she would come back from her trip to Mexico. She would pay a small fine to the booze police and reopen and everything would go back to normal. And then the next year in February, they would show up again and be shocked, shocked, I tell you, to find that liquor was being sold illegally at the snake pit. Uh, and the whole thing would repeat. I, I love that story. I think it might be true. Um, it's hard to tell. I do know that Josie went to Mexico all the time. I do know she was selling booze without a liquor license. Um, I don't know how much anybody in law enforcement really cared about places in the Silver Valley selling booze without a license in the 1950s. Yeah. Um, but, uh, yeah, I do like that one. I know that in 1974, Spokane had a World's Fair, Expo 74, and um, Idaho had a booth at the World's Fair, and the Idaho booth was Josie Bates, the owner and madam of the snake pit, um, making huckleberry pancakes and serving Rocky Mountain oysters to all the visitors to the World's Fair so that everyone could see what Idaho was really all about. Um, Josie was the one that established Rocky Mountain oysters as one of the snake pit's iconic dishes. We've been serving them ever since the 50s, since she bought the place. Um, and apparently that's how... Uh, the powers that be decided that Idaho should represent itself to the world was with a uh, madam serving fried bull balls to uh, visitors from all over the world. Welcome to Idaho, right? <laughs> yeah, exactly. Mm-hmm. Oh, I love um, that. She definitely sounds like a character for sure. Yeah, for sure. She, um, she pitched the name Josie's Tavern. We've got a couple of old pieces of memorabilia with the name Josie's Tavern on it. In 1975, it would appear that the booze police were giving her some some real problems. So she applied for a liquor license um, using the Idaho law that says that you can have, be granted a liquor license if you're operating a waterfront resort. Um, our property, even though we're sitting right at the fork of the Coeur d'Alene River, our property doesn't touch any water. But when she filled out the liquor license application, instead of calling it Josie's Tavern, the name of the business she wrote down was the Enaville Resort. Um, I, there were horrible floods in 1975, and I'm told that the floods were so bad that the water actually came up to the front steps of the snake pit. If you come to the snake pit and see where the rivers are, it's almost it's hard for me to imagine. Those rivers would have had to have been so high. Um Several people have told me that they remember that Josie tied some canoes up to the front step of the snake pit and had somebody wade out into the flooded parking lot to take pictures of the building to show that the snake pit is a beautiful waterfront resort so that she could get a liquor license. I can't find the photo. Several people have told me they remember seeing it, but I've never found a copy of the photo with the canoes. Um, the bureaucrats in Boise weren't quite as dumb as we assumed they would have been, and the liquor <laughs> license application was turned down flat. But 
uh, Josie and the next couple of owners stuck with the name Enaville Resort, trying to get people to call the building that. If they weren't going to call it Josie's Tavern, at least they could call it something besides the Snake Pit. But the customers didn't comply, and they kept calling it the Snake Pit anyway. We still have a couple of signs on the building that say Enaville Resort, though. I guess you can't fault her for trying, right? No, no. She was she was trying really hard, and she was actually trying to make the place semi-legitimate. Depending on who I talked to, by 1975, I'm guessing probably that there was no brothel upstairs anymore, although a few people tell me that that's not the case. Um, so, yeah, I think there was some sort of an attempt to go semi-legitimate with the place, but the, the liquor license application failed. Right. When did you take mm-hmm. over the snake pit? Uh, five years ago. So that would be May of 2014. Um, I'd been a regular customer there since about 1980. And um, I was actually living overseas. And um, we had uh, been overseas for 13 years and decided it was time to come back to Idaho at least for a while. And lo and behold, my favorite restaurant was for sale. So uh, we bought it, actually closed on the building while I was still in, in South Korea. So uh, a friend of mine who's now my business partner um, ran the place for about six weeks while I was making my way back from Korea. And that would have been June and July of 2014. And so we've been running it ever since. Now, locals would, will say, and, and it sounds like defend it fiercely on social media, that it's always been uh-huh. called the snake pit. But you were the yeah. one that officially got it registered as the, the snake pit. Yeah. It we're, uh, to the best of my knowledge, we're the first owners to actually use the name the snake pit as the official business name. Okay. So we don't use any other names for the place. Now, what can I expect from visiting the Snake Pit today, and how can I find out more about you guys? Um, well, uh, we have a website um, and a Facebook page. Um, we do, and we actually do a lot of live music events um, at the Snake Pit. So, um, there's a lot of information about that on the Facebook page. Um, I, I do actually really like our website. It's it's very well designed. I think it's very beautiful. But um, the Facebook page gets a lot more attention, um, and uh, there's a lot more um, information and comments on there about what customers think about the place. Um, What you're going to find is a very remote backwoods restaurant. Um, The building is and the atmosphere are very, very unique. Um, The decor on the walls is nothing like what, I think, well, if I thought about someone trying to create a stereotypical like Wild West saloon-themed restaurant, they would not decorate it the way our building is decorated. Um, Some of it you might expect. We've got some old uh, military rifles hanging over the bar. We've got some miners' lamps and some other mining equipment hanging on the walls. Um, That would make sense. We also have a giant sword collection hanging on the walls that nobody seems to know where it came from. Um, A decorative plate collection that I'm pretty sure belonged to Josie Bates, but um, that's kind of speculation and hearsay. Um, There there are just a lot of fascinating things on the walls. So 
quite a few uh, customers, especially first timers, will show up and spend a half an hour just walking around looking at the decor on the walls because it's it's really fascinating. Um, so a really unique atmosphere and uh, restaurant serving. Um, oh, amongst other phrases that have been thrown around about the place, barbecue. Uh, excuse me, barbecue burgers and balls, or barbecue burgers, beer and balls, depending on um, who you talk to. Um, we are a barbecue restaurant, um, smoke all of our barbecue in-house, um, and uh, we're serving a, a really good hamburger that's uh, made with hand-formed patties made out of fresh meat. Um, we have Rocky Mountain oysters ready to go anytime anybody's brave enough to try them, and, uh, and a full bar to go along with that. Um, so that's what you'd expect, a very, very unique, old, historic atmosphere um, with some great uh, casual dining and, um, uh, and good food. Yeah, that sounds fantastic. Absolutely. And, and definitely a very unique place, um, from, mm-hmm. again, from exploring your website and looking at pictures and, and reading up on the history, it, it definitely is a very unique one of a kind place. Yes, it is. And, um, I once in a while get asked, usually by tourists that don't know any better, if we have plans on opening other locations. And I think, no, because this place is totally unique. There's absolutely no way it could be duplicated and, and it would be silly to even try. So um, it's, it's just a very, very unique building with a very unique history that you're just not going to find anything like it anywhere else. Yeah. Well, I, Wanted to thank you for your time today and for answering my questions. Absolutely. Uh, Happy to talk to you and hope to see you at the Snake Pit soon. All right. Again, special thanks to Tom for taking time to come on the show today. There's links in the description to their website, the Snake Pits website, as well as their Facebook page. Make sure you go and check them out. And if you're ever in the Coeur d'Alene area in North Idaho, make sure you go in and uh, and check them out in person. It sounds like a really unique place and a, and a lot of fun. To close the show today, I'm going to step into the kitchen briefly and talk about a family recipe that I made. Now, this recipe was one that I found in my grandma's recipe box in our family cabin. This has been a treasure trove of recipes that some were recipes that my grandma added and some were added by visitors that had come through the cabin in its long history in our family. There's a lot of really delicious recipes. When I'm looking through this box and knowing the experiences that I've had up at the cabin, there's one thing for sure. We always eat well when we go to the cabin. We were always able to gather around the table for a good meal. Now this recipe from the handwriting and talking with different members in the family, we think it was our uh, great-grandma Tippett's recipe and it's for applesauce cake. Now, this cake has no eggs, so if you're allergic to eggs or have an issue with eggs, then this actually was a pretty good recipe. It was heavily spiced with cloves, cinnamon, and nutmeg, and then you had the applesauce, of course, and then cocoa powder, candies, and maraschino cherries. So there's a lot going on in this cake. 
For me personally, I like a more simple dessert. I like simple flavors like a chocolate chip cookie or a piece of apple pie. But some people really do like a heavily spiced dessert. And for those of you out there that really enjoy these types of recipes, you got to check out this recipe. It was a really great tasting recipe. It came together just right. And there was a lot of good balance in the recipe. When I was looking at the ingredients, I was seeing that it had gumdrops and maraschino cherries and all these different spices and lots of sugar and applesauce. And I was thinking, this thing is going to be overwhelmingly sweet and spicy. And it wasn't the case. There was one ingredient in there that really I felt was quite unique. There was cocoa powder. The cocoa powder added a little bit of bitterness to it that really balanced out the flavors and the other ingredients, the spices, the sweets, and it all came together in one solid bite. My grandpa Tippett's, this was his type of dessert. It was something that he would always like to eat. As I was making this recipe, I couldn't help but think back to times that I had with my grandpa and uh, growing up, the memories that I have. It's amazing how a recipe, even though I don't have memories of eating something like this with my grandpa, I know that uh, I have a lot of special memories with him, and that all bubbled up to the surface as I was making this recipe, making something that his mom used to make when he was growing up. That was something that was was really unique and really special to me, and it really hit home that that's really what I'm trying to do here. I'm trying to help people connect with their past through food. And so if you have a family recipe that's near and dear, you have a good story with it, make sure you go to toastykettle.com. You can submit that recipe and we'll share it with everyone on the website. That's all I have for today. If you like what you heard, tell a friend, check out our website, toastykettle.com. That's where you can find recipes and more information about the different shows that we've done, podcasts that we've done. And I like to think there's a little something for everyone up there. Until next week.